We turn in the Word of God, Psalm 18, verses 4 through 6. Our Pelagian disposition means that we always want to put ourselves in the centre of everything. We want, we crave, we demand that everyone looks and thinks and acts in relation to ourselves. We are obsessed with that human trinity, me, myself and I. No one suffers as we do. No one has problems as we have. No one can possibly understand our sorrows. What a catalogue of self-centeredness that we have created and generated around us. Psalm 18 looks you straight in the eye and says to you, stand to one side here and turn your gaze upon Christ, the cross and the sufferings. He is in the centre. You are not in the centre. And here you do look and gaze at the Saviour's darkest hour. Psalm 18 says to you, survey the cross, the sufferings of Jesus Christ, who is the centre of all things. So as we look at these verses, we do so under that general heading, the darkest hour, part two, surveying the cross, surveying the cross. Let's first of all make a general comment on the magnitude of his sufferings before going any further. There are six aspects to the magnitude of the Saviour's suffering. These verses indicate, first of all, violent sufferings. The Saviour did not die of old age, did not die of sickness. What he suffered was given to him. It was done to him. We do not read of the Saviour falling sick. But we do read that he was taken and by wicked hands crucified, Acts 2.23, violent sufferings. But secondly, severe sufferings, not only violent in their origin, but severe in their degree. In the biblical record, we read of reproach, breaking his heart, Psalm 69, and in verse 20, reproach hath broken my heart and I am full of heaviness and I look for some to take pity but there was none none I pity Christ no one pity Christ that he was exceedingly sorrowful unto death that being in agony we read he sweat as it were great drops of blood such was the severity of his sufferings. 
And thirdly, numerous sufferings. Look at the language of this. Uh, everything is plural. Sorrows, compass, floods. Verse 6, sorrows, compass, snares, prevented. Everything is put in the plural form to indicate the sheer number of things that Christ had to suffer. There's nothing singular about it in terms of one item. But no, there were many, many sorrows, many, many snares. And fourthly, very sufferings. Physical and mental. External, internal. Abandoned by his disciples. Slandered by all who passed by. We read as they passed by, they stuck out their tongue. They wagged their heads. And then they said terrible things to him as he hung upon the cross. Buried in degree and extent of being beaten as well as slandered. Different types of sufferings. And the fifth thing we must say is that they were fatal sufferings. He speaks of the sorrows of death and hell. The Lord Jesus Christ did die regardless of the old liberals and the critics who want to do away with the actual death of Christ. Philippians 2, it is clear. As a man, he humbled himself became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The Saviour in his humanity did really die. And the Gospel records demonstrate that. When they came to examine those who were crucified, they came to Christ, they saw he had already died. And remarkably, what they did to the body was in itself a fulfillment of prophecy. And the sixth thing, penal sufferings. The wages of sin is death. Peter tells us he bore our sin in his own body on the tree. The Savior without sin he knew no sin. He had no sin. He did no sin. He was blameless and perfect. And yet, he suffered the wages of sin because our sin was imputed to Christ. He bore the penalty that we ought to have borne. His sufferings were penal sufferings. He took our place. He died in our room instead, a substitutionary death. This is an aspect of the cross. Again, many, many people nowadays reject. They dispute it, they dislike it, they hate it. 
the, it all started with the liberals who read the Bible. They said, we don't want that. We don't like that. And so they began to teach that it's all untrue. But my dear friends, why did he die at all on the cross? The whole record points you to that singular truth that he came to die for sinners in the room and place instead of sinners. It's because of sin and judgment and the entire sacrificial system in the Old Testament was designed to point every Israelite to the cross to understand in that physical concrete sense that wonderful truth of satisfaction that the law must be satisfied by way of death and suffering our sins must be dealt with the problem of sin can only be dealt with by the cross but if Christ is not our Savior then hell is eternal. It must be eternal because every sin is against God who is himself infinite, eternal and unchanging. And the shocking, terrible aspect of hell is that all who are cast into hell, that hell itself is eternal unchanging there is no escape and so the gospel has always been there is a remedy the remedy is the saviour Jesus Christ and so this particular truth the, the penal sufferings of Christ are so important so there is the magnitude of his suffering well coming closer to the text let's consider the significance of his sufferings and here we must consider the following words first of all sorrows the sorrows of death verse 4 the sorrows of hell this word sorrows is elsewhere translated in our authorized version as cord and ropes so these sorrows that christ experienced were like cords they were like ropes they surrounded him they compassed him they held his humanity fast the second word is flats. That indicates the magnitude. And again, we go back to Psalm 69. See me, O God, for the waters are coming onto my soul. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am coming to deep waters where the flats overflow me. I am weary of my crying. My throat is dried. My eyes feel while I wait for my God. And the same point is made in Psalm 40. Verse 12, for innumerable evils have compassed me about. Fascinating how in relation to this, the floods of ungodly men. And the word there that's being translated ungodly men is the word Belial. The men of Belial, those who belong to Belial, 
Belial, of course, is another name for Satan. Second Corinthians, Paul puts a contrast. Christ or Belial. There are only two masters. You serve Christ or you serve Satan. And so here are the followers, the servants of Satan. Wicked hands, remember. Cruel men with wicked hands. Wicked people, cruel people. Men of Belial. Ungodly people. And the whole world of ungodliness is against Christ. That's why Christians are exclusively unique. Because the Lord has taken us, as it were, out of the world, made us his own. We stand against the world. We stand before the world. We are to be those little signposts pointing to the King of Kings. I'm a follower of Jesus. We don't stand with the world because we no longer belong to the world. The Lord has delivered us. We're no longer on the broad road with the ungodly, with the children of Belial. I say to younger ones, you know, do not be tempted to shame. The Lord has plucked you as a brand from the burning. You're no longer on the broad road. Do not consider the broad road as attractive. They have many dainties to try and seduce you and allure you. But they're all false because they're temporary as well. Be thankful. <laughs> No longer in the camp of Belial, but in the camp of Christ. Third, the sorrows of hell. The word here, of course, as you know, is Hades. Now, the context is crucial to understand this. Again, the old liberals come along and they want to confuse us. Well, let us not be confused. On the one hand, the emphasis may be on the state of the soul as separated from the body. But in another context, the emphasis is on the state of the body as separated from the soul. So that's why this word Hades sometimes means a grave, sometimes it means hell. Depends on the context. Here the emphasis on the state of the soul, the sorrows, or the cords of hell, indicating the severity and the punishing nature of a suffering. All the wrath of God poured out upon Christ. No one else could endure the wrath of God. And the intensity of it all will become more clear as we go through the psalm. But there is the Saviour in his humanity bearing the entirety and totality of the wrath and the boiling fury of God against sin. And he is a bearer of our sins. So think then of the magnitude of that wrath. The wrath of God for each of the elect born by Christ on the cross, of which there is a multitude that no man can number, yet he bears entirely the total wrath of God for each of the Lord's own people. 
It's hard for us to interact or grasp the magnitude of that. We take each sinner saved by grace and the wrath due to each of them for every sin and each sin deserving eternal punishment. Yet the Saviour is sufficient. The sufficiency of the Saviour to bear that wrath in, his all, in all its entirety, in his own body on the tree. You understand why the psalmist calls it the sorrows of hell. And fourthly, you have the snares of death, verse 5. Death is presented as a trap, prevented me. Death met him at the cross. Death, like a mighty hunter, ensnared him, so to speak. And do you understand the significance of that? You need Hebrews 2.14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death, Death, like a mighty hunter, met the Saviour at the cross. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. Death is in itself a force, a weapon in the hands of Satan. But astonishingly at the cross, Christ conquered death. Christ conquered Satan. So death then, and I say this simply, though nervously, death ceases to be a terror for the Lord's people. I don't say that glibly. But it's because of Christ. Death the enemy, in a strange sense, becomes the friend of the Christian. How can that be? Because in death, the souls of believers enter into glory. Because Christ has conquered death. He's conquered death because he conquered Satan. In whose hands death became a terror, a weapon to frighten people. That's why at funerals, people talk so much garbage at funerals. You know, you're sitting there in a home or in a meeting house and you listen to the babble. It's all garbage, my friends. No one wants to talk about death. They don't want even to talk about the one who has died. They talk about work, holidays, the weather. They'll talk about anything but death because they're afraid of death. And some of that conversation is held by Christians, professing Christians. Also astonishing, isn't it? No one wants to talk about death. And we have this practice now, as you know, that's become quite obnoxious, this filthy practice. We want to turn everything into fun. Even funerals must be fun. Come to the funeral with bright clothes. We'll play the favourite music of the one who has died. Let's have a party. It's all so grotesque, isn't it? It's all so horrible. Put you off going to these things. Well, some of us stopped going to some of them a long time ago. But that's beside the point. 
that you go even into a meeting house. And even there, the garbage is heard. Oh, my friend, as Christians. Take the children to the cemetery. Walk around all of those headstones. Look at the names. See what you can learn. See what is stated on the headstone. Read the text, if there are texts of scripture there. Make them acquainted with death. Bring them to funerals, don't keep them away. That they might become acquainted, not with the terror, but with a lifelong friend. Spurgeon once said, I, I don't know whether to call it a living death or a dying life, because death is there on your elbow. Sorrows of hell are followed by the snares of death. Christ has conquered death. So John Owen puts it, Christ's death solved the problem of death. Satan can no longer terrorize us with it. Not terrify. It should be said of all of us who are Christians. After we're dead, people should say, well, you know, they were ready for death. They looked for death. Because they look for Christ. Are you ready for death? Children, no matter how young you are, are you ready for death? In those cemeteries, you'll see a headstone, sometimes an entire family. Providence removed. You see all the names of the children, it gives you their very age two years, three months, one year, six months, nine months. The children are all there. Are you ready for death? So you have the magnitude of a suffering, the significance of a suffering, but then thirdly, the experience of a suffering. How seldom we ask, what did it all mean for Christ? You know, there is that question that the Savior puts to the disciples, you know, as they're arguing amongst themselves. None of you ask me. You have no question for me. You never pause sufficiently long to inquire. What did it all mean for Christ? No, no, we are so Pelagian, we are so self-centered. When we think of the cross, we always describe it and think of it in terms of us. What benefit we get from it, I'm not saying that is wrong, my dear friends. To the contrary, it is necessary, but it's not surely the starting point. The starting point is not, this is what the cross means to me. What did it mean for Christ? What did it mean for Christ to come into the world? What did humiliation mean for Christ to be enfleshed? What did it mean for Christ? to hunger and to thirst and to walk along the roads from one village to another. What did it all mean for him? Well, we can say the following. First of all, he says in verse six, in my distress. The word distress is elsewhere translated as trouble, affliction and sorrow. In my distress. 
When was the last time you thought of the sorrows, the distress that all this work caused Christ? Are we so glib, so worldly, so hard-hearted that we never pause to think about this distress suffered, experienced, endured by the Saviour? Are we really that bad, that hard-hearted, that we haven't got the time to consider what it meant for Jesus? Why do we always start with ourselves? In my distress. Second, I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God. The Saviour in his humanity engaged intensively in prayer. And uh, this is a huge subject, I know. But we'll do our best to draw to your attention three aspects or three evidences of this. First of all, there's the record of his praying. And that record is very clear. Luke 22 and in verse 44. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And he sweat. The sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And then you have that statement in Hebrews 5 and in verse 7. Who in the days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death. The Saviour all his life on earth was a man of prayer. Luke's Gospel, as you know, is constructed with the prayer life of Jesus at the heart. And so before every major event, Luke records the Saviour prayer. He was a man of prayer. That's why the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. They saw the Saviour of prayer. So they wanted to pray like Christ. That's a wonderful question. So there's a record. But then, of course, secondly, we must say a little about the prophecy. So in Psalm 22 and verse 2, Oh my God, I cry in the daytime and in the night season and I'm not silent. Verse 11, be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Verses 19 to 21, be not thou far from me, O Lord, my strength. Haste thee to help me. I deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth. This is the prayer of Christ even on the cross. There are other Psalms. Psalm 40, verses 11 and 13. Psalm 41, verse 10. Psalm 69, they all prophesy of the praying engaged in by Jesus. And then, of course, thirdly, in the New Testament, we have the evidence of his praying. Well, here too, this is a big subject. Matthew 26 and verse 39, he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thy will. In John 17, that huge prayer, the Lord's own prayer. Many books have been written and sermons preached on that. I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God, the Saviour at prayer. 
and especially in Gethsemane, he prays with agony. What did it mean for Christ? Distress. It meant intensity in prayer. The third comment is, he heard my voice. So says the psalmist rightly. In my distress, I called upon the Lord, cried unto my God. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry came before him even into his ears. Well, of course, this too was fulfilled in his praying unto Christ. Psalm 34 and verse 6, This poor man cried, the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. New Testament, of course, rightly quotes these verses. And in Hebrews 5, verse 7, I read a moment ago, he offered up prayers and supplications and was heard in that he feared. The Lord heard. Well, what that hearing meant, we will see God willing next time from verse 7 onwards. In those hours of darkness, what was happening? What was going on? Well, verse 7 onwards describes that for you. That astonishing description that we have. But he heard my voice. You know, as you look at this, I suppose it is at this point we can tentatively, carefully bring ourselves along the way. In our distress, there's an intensity to our praying. And do we not testify the Lord heard? How often the Lord has heard us? Have you recorded somewhere in your mind or in a little journal? Here's the problem. Here was the trial. Here was my distress. And I cried. Oh, how I cried to God. I didn't know what was going to happen. How the Lord would sort it. And the Lord heard. And of course, we don't like the answer sometimes. We don't, like, we don't like the way the Lord did it. You know? So we start to mutter, oh, my dear friends, whatever answer the Lord gives is sufficient. The Lord heard. What more needs to be said? That is enough. Well, let's come to some points of application of all of this. First of all, I say to you, dear friends, in all kindness, but with all bluntness and plainness, before you think of yourself in relation to the cross, think first of Christ. You need to stop putting yourselves in the centre. We need to start with God, not with ourselves. That's a very difficult thing to do. Because in a sense, our whole life is all about us. And then in our crazy culture, it's all about self-esteem. You know, the old word was narcissism, which nobody liked. But then they very cleverly substituted self-esteem for narcissism. You know, that's how clever we are, aren't we? And it's still all about us. We start with us all the time. It's all about me. Everything. You know, you ask somebody how they are, and the person they ask brings it back to themselves. Oh, let me tell you about me. We always want to turn everything back around to ourselves. 
Let us not be like that as Christians. Let us start with Christ. Every thought captive in us. Christ has conquered the citadel of the heart. We belong to him. We have been bought with a price. Let us start with Christ and not with ourselves. It makes for a very poor, miserable existence to start with yourself. And it actually makes your conversation very dull and boring because we're all in the same boat in one sense. But when we start with Christ, oh, well, how different did I become, doesn't it? How wonderful, how exciting. Let's start with the Lord. Start the day with Christ. Matthew Henry wrote a little booklet. How to begin the day with God. And then he realized I need to have a second part. How to continue the day with God. Then he realized he needed a third part. How to end the day with God. <coughs> and that's it, isn't it? We begin, we continue, and we end. Each day with God. That's what makes everything so wonderful, so fascinating. So exciting, because God is first and foremost, and the kingdom of God is what we seek. Let us start then always with the Savior. But the second lesson is this, to learn from Christ. What does Christ lay out for you in this psalm? Well, he lays out for you two very simple things. First of all, in distress, call upon God. Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. You know, this verse gives rise to two questions, doesn't it? First question comes from the very first line. <coughs> trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Can God be trusted? That's a question of theology. Can God be trusted? What do you know of God? What do you know of God? What do you know of the person of God, his being, the works of God, <coughs> the attributes of God, the will of God? Isn't that what the first half of the Shorter Catechism is about? What man is to believe concerning God? So I say to the children who are going through the Catechism, you know, that first half, before you get to the law, the first half is what you are to believe about God. The being of God. The decrees of God. The will of God. The cross of Christ. It's all there. And so, can God be trusted? The second line. Lean not on to thine own understanding. Do you trust God? Do you? That's the rub, isn't it? Can you? Do you? Are you trusting God? So in distress, call upon God. Why? Because he can be trusted. Why? I do trust him. So the Savior exemplifies this truth for you. The second thing, like Christ, go to God on the very same terms. What are the terms? The Lord, my God. My God. On the very same basis and terms as Christ. 
go you to God, that you belong to him, that he is our Father in heaven, our heavenly Father, upon whom we depend and trust. Not all earthly fathers are dependable. Some are bad earthly fathers. Don't let that put you off. Go into our Father in heaven, who is true, who is perfect, who is unchanging, who is full of kindness and goodness and mercy. Go to God on the same terms as the Saviour. The Lord, the word Lord in capitals, it's Jehovah or Yahweh, the covenant-making God. On the grounds of the covenant, I belong to him. Therefore, as my Father in heaven, I cry to thee in all of my distress. And the third thing is, when the Lord hears, when the Lord hears, he heard me, says Christ. Well, as I said earlier, and I repeat it here, when the Lord hears, take note of it. There is a poem, people use it as a hymn, there is a poem which is pertinent. His love and time past forbids me to think he leave me at last in trouble to sink. You think the Lord, having done so much for us, will turn his back on us? He deserved, we deserve to have his back turned to us, don't we? But do you think the Lord, having planned all, accomplished all, done all, that he will abandon us at the very end? You know that wonderful historical comment. Erskine was visiting a lady. He was dying, a lady in his congregation. And as Erskine always did, he questioned, you know. Nowadays, that's not bedside manner, I suppose. But anyway, Erskine did it. And as he's talking to this lady and she's professing faith in Jesus Christ, you know how it goes. And he questions her about the certainty of salvation. And she says, well, he holds me with his hand. Erskine replied, but what if he fall through his fingers? <laughs> she replied, he's mere to lose in me. I will lose my soul, but he will lose his reputation. You think the Lord will abandon us at the end? Of course not. What a silly idea it is. What a wrong idea. What an unbiblical idea. And yet, isn't it the thing that crosses our minds? Isn't it how often we question? How often we wonder? But that's our trouble, isn't it? That's our problem. Let us trust the Lord. Let us follow the Lord himself, because that is what discipleship means. That's what it means to be a Christian. Let us follow the Lord. He heard me, says Christ. And since the Christ is our Savior and intercedes for us, he will hear us too.
But when the Lord hears, take note of it. Be thankful for it. Rejoice as a consequence. And give thanks in return. Do not be like those lepers. All ten of them. Nine never went back to say thanks. But in gratitude. One went back. Be you that one. He goes back continually, thanking the Lord. You heard me. In all my distresses, and with sore crying, I cried to thee. And thou didst hear me. And for that, we give thanks. And everything, says the scripture, be thankful in everything. May the Lord bless these words.